This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23, follow at your own risk. And normally I would be introducing, as always, the president of The Witness, Mr. Jamar Tisby. But Jamar is out once again this week, you guys. He is once again not in Wakanda. But seriously, now keep Jamar in your prayers as he continues to travel the country to teach, preach, and lead every single week. He is a blessing to the body of Christ, blessing to the American church, and we should not take his labors for granted. So reach out to him, encourage him. And if you follow him on Twitter, at Jamar Tisby, you can see if he's coming to a city near you as well. You can see him live and in person. And speaking of cities near you, I also want to take this moment to remind you that we are going to Dallas for the second stop of the PTM Live Tour. It's going to be at LifePoint Church on Saturday, April 7th at 3 p.m. And there we'll be live recording our 200th episode of Pass the Mic. It is crazy and it promises to be a very special moment. So you can go and click the Eventbrite link in the description of this podcast to get your tickets today and for more information about the event. I know Dallas is fired up and ready to go. I can't wait to meet so many of the people who have encouraged us from afar face-to-face, so do not miss it. If you're anywhere in the vicinity, meet us on Saturday, April 7th at LifePoint Church in Dallas. But for today's episode, we have a special guest. I got the chance to interview one of our favorite writers, who we have referenced a few times already on this podcast. Her name is Elizabeth Brunig. She is an opinion columnist at the Washington Post. She has contributed for a number of outlets, including The Nation, New Republic, The Atlantic, and she has a great personal page on Medium as well that you guys can follow. So check that out. Elizabeth writes about Christianity, the economy, and all politics from a left-wing perspective. So this promises to be a very challenging, hopefully discombobulating conversation for many of you. And for me, it was a very refreshing dialogue as well. We had a number of different topics, including building a moral economy, some of the history surrounding the politics of the religious right, racialized language concerning money and finances and wealth. And we even got to speak about some fun stuff at the end, which you guys, I'll just leave you in suspense about what we talk about. As we say in the interview, you can keep up with Elizabeth on Twitter at E. Brunig, and she's a terrific Twitter follow as well. So sit back and I hope you enjoy this conversation that I was blessed to have with Elizabeth Brunig. Elizabeth Brunig, it's an honor to have you here with us on Pass the Mic. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, reading your writing is very challenging for me, precisely because you use terms and concepts that for years I thought were exclusively conservative, like morality, values, mercy, things of those nature. And, and I think it's it's the story for many of our listeners as well. So I would love for you to to kind of give us the the opportunity 
um, to hear from your perspective how you continue to do Christian theology from a liberal political perspective, maybe telling a story of how you got to that place. Yeah, well, I mean, so, you know, one of the things I was lucky to do is to be able to study theology in another country. Um, So I I got my theology degree in the United Kingdom. So in Europe, um, you know, their history is a lot different than America's, and they don't have really the equivalent of the religious right that we do in the United States. So Mm. here in the U.S., it's the religious right, you know, moral majority, um, you know, conservative Christian Republicans who really kind of get to determine what Christianity looks like in public life and in politics. So if you think of someone who's very political and very religious, probably the person who's going to come to mind for you is a conservative religious person. Hmm. And so it, it makes sense that, you know, as a result of that, in the United States, the American left has said, you know, well, if that's the case, then we're going to do politics um, you know, in less religious terms, because we don't want to uh, turn people off who are turned off by the kind of conservative religious practice of politics, mm. and we want our style of politics to be distinctive. But in Europe, you get to see that there are lots and lots of left Christian parties. There are Christian socialist parties, there are Christian social democratic parties, um, and there have been for a very, very long time. Um, you know, in some cases, these groups are 100 years old or more. Um, wow. And there have also been, you know, just lots of figures, historical figures, I pastors, politicians, public intellectuals, and European life who were Christians on the left. And that's, that's really helpful, and it really opened my eyes. I mean, I had never really seen anything like that before. Um, I grew up in Texas, and, uh, hmm. and then I went to college on the East Coast, but, you know, I, I was as unfamiliar with that as anybody. But getting familiarized with it, um, you know, it just it made me think that it would be a really nice thing to have in the United States, because I know there are lots of people... You know, in Pew does political typology surveys, you can see through poll results there are a lot of people who are religious but consider themselves part of the left. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they really have a voice in American politics that comes through really strong and clear, um, although there have definitely always been people operating in that tradition. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is right. probably the best example. Uh, and, you know, Jim Wallace today has just mm-hmm. kind of been on that groove for a long time. And then you have sort of liberation Catholics in Latin America and the U.S., um, but I, I think it would be really great to have a, a stronger voice sort of for the religious left-minded folks out there. And so that's kind of what I aim to do. So, it, and it's very interesting because you said that the left kind of strategically pushed away from using maybe some of the religious language and jargon. And so that's helpful for me to hear, I think, because Jamar and I, who's not on this particular episode, have this back and forth conversation about how the left talks about Christianity and how the left talks about religion and how that's, for me, maybe something that I'm still trying to wrap my brain around and and think through. Do you think that that tide is, is shifting or changing in any way or it's clarifying What's the future of Christianity from a non-right-wing conservative perspective? I think like a lot of things right now in in, in American political life, it's sort of up for grabs, um, because Mm. this presidency, you know, as we speak, the Stormy Daniels interview is going on in 60 minutes. That's surreal, (laughs) right? It's crazy. It is. It's it's put, um, you know, Christians who would traditionally be supportive of the Republican Party in almost any circumstance in kind of an odd position. Now, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to change their minds. Um, and I, I don't think I've seen a lot of uh, defection in polls. But the show's not over yet, either. 
So there's still time for, you know, what's going to unfold from this particular presidency to have its impact in the evangelical world. Um, and, uh, you know, if that's the case, if, if, if that shift does happen, those voters are going to be looking um, for a place to belong, or we'll just have even more voter disengagement than we already have, which is another possibility. Right. Um, but, you know, I think that another, uh, another change that's happening in American life is we're having demographic changes. So if we have immigrants come from other countries and sort of change the shape of the population, a lot of those immigrants are religious, and mm. a lot of them, uh, you know, would tend towards left politics, if only because they are immigrants and, and they're new arrivers to this country, and the Republican Party right now uh, is, is strongly anti-immigration. Mm. So the left would have a chance um, with those voters, I think. And, and, and part of how that could happen is just sort of figuring out how to talk to them. And that's, that's partially a job for the Institutional Democratic Party, um, which, you know, they think the largest single religious constituency inside the Democratic Party are, are nuns, people who right. are not religiously affiliated. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, something the Democratic Party could maybe use a little more work on, is how to communicate with those kinds of voters. Um, and then insofar as the broader American left, I mean, the attitude I see um, uh, in new American left, those who are kind of outside of the Institutional Democratic Party, seems to be an attitude that's very friendly towards coalition building. Hmm. Um, so I think it's possible. I mean, I wouldn't say it's absolutely certain, and I don't think that the religious left is ever going to be the equivalent of the religious right, just because the funding isn't there for that to right. happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think you could see more of a left religious um, presence, definitely, in coming years. You know, it's fascinating to watch how you interact with people who you disagree with. And it's something that I really enjoy watching. I know that may not be as enjoyable for you as you're participating (laughs) in it, Um, but you tend to talk to people who are from a wide range of ideological perspectives. What has been your, your framework for interacting with people who disagree with you? Because in these debates and in these conversations, tensions and tempers run high, and especially for many of us who are listening as African-Americans within this country, um, there's a lot of of what this debate and policy means that's tied to our well-being, our way of life. So how do you remain sane, I guess, interacting with people from a different ideological perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's complicated. One piece of that puzzle, as you point out, is that I am white and, and, you know, so the the risks of the kinds of politics that are being proposed by folks on the right are not as proximate to me mm. um, as they are to people of color, immigrants. Um, and so I, um, I, I'm not bent on civility, you know. It's not something mm. that I'm obsessed about. I don't go around giving people a hard time about um, not being perfectly civil in arguments. Right. It's how I personally conduct myself. Um, but, for instance, my husband is, is kind of a spitfire <laughs> <laughs> in arguments. And, and I understand why, and especially where it comes to people who, for whom these threats are really proximate and mm. extremely personal and relate directly to their families. Um, I completely understand taking a different approach and just having a different emotional response, and I certainly don't want to criticize that at all. I always just, um, I grew up in a conservative household. Mm. My parents are Republican voters, lifelong Texan Republicans. And my dad always watched sort of conservative networks. And one thing I always remembered growing up was when sort of um, rules would come on Fox or they would go on Hannity or they would go on O'Reilly and they would have these arguments. My dad would say, 
know, I don't agree with so-and-so, but at least they'll talk, at least they'll come discuss, Hmm. and at least they'll seriously argue. And there's so much mistrust and cynicism and, you know, sort of extreme antipathy between the American right and left, especially during this particular administration, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, the way that I can see, the way that I conceive of my role is as one of those people who will at least talk. So... Hmm. You know, that's kind of what I try to do. So every time I get invitations, I debated at Liberty Con, which is a conservative, um, which is a, is a wow. big convention for libertarians. <laughs> You're brave. I debated in favor You're brave, of Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah. You're brave. I, de- I debated at Acton University, which is a, mm-hmm. uh, a, a conservative, economically conservative-leaning think tank. Um, I, I've, I've gone on the Michael Medved show, and I'm, I'm more than happy um, to pretty much go anywhere and do anything in terms of having arguments. Um, Precisely because I at least want, you know, my actual perspective and the actual arguments I'm being made to reach people who disagree. At least that way they know what I really mean. They're not getting it filtered through a conservative website or a conservative pundit who's sort of, you know, giving their interpretation of what I think. They're actually getting it unfiltered from me. And I I really want that opportunity um, to kind of present my points uh, and, you know, the sort of points of the broader left in general, to people who otherwise might not hear them unmediated. Right. At the same time, I, uh, I can understand why other people on the left who, whose situations are very different um, might not want to bother with that and shouldn't be expected to if they don't want to. You know, and, and then in terms of dealing with people, I just try to you know, treat people the way I'd want to be treated. Right. <laughs> sort of be calm and be considerate and try to really understand what they're really saying. Um, yeah, there there is this tension, yeah. I think, just be- between that virtuous, you know, impulse that the gospel is constantly calling us to, and the ideas of scripture, and and is is just, you know, the life of Jesus is pulling us towards, and also the reality that hey, these are serious policies, and they affect people, and people are dying, and it's just it's just right. very families difficult. are being broken up, and right. people are being murdered. I I don't think that I don't think that the gospel counsels total passivity. Hmm. You know, I don't think that. I don't think that you're required to, in every circumstance, especially circumstances of extreme and very dangerous injustice, I don't think you're required to, you know, sort of quietly accept it. I don't think that's the case. And and I especially don't think that can be expected of the people who are directly affected. You know, I think that mm-hmm. it's a, you know, Christ counsels mercy, but he's also a king of justice. Yes. Um, and he, he's very, very vocal about the worldly injustice in his own society, you know, in the time that he's on earth. So I think he would completely support people being extremely vocal and demanding about justice. Mm, that's very, very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit here, you know, one of the topics that you frequently address is the idea of, of building a moral economy, a moral yeah. uh, perspective of, of economics. And how do you frame the idea of morality in the context of economics? And, and where does that framework leads you and i'm 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 avoiding i'm kind of throwing you the alley-oop question because i already know what you're going to say pretty much but it's just for our listeners you know there's there's such an entrenchment of kind of western ideals when it comes to economics especially from a christian perspective so give us a little bit of your philosophy as you approach that sure so i mean uh one of the ways that we tend to think about the economy and sort of the english-speaking world is that it's just this independent thing outside of politics. It's made up of markets and desires and prices and so on, and it functions all by itself, and then politicians try to tinker with it. Um, 
And that's not actually the case, right? It, politics structures the economy. The legislative decisions that we make um, structure and shape how the economy is going to work. You can have very different economies depending on your laws. Um, and so then the question is, okay, well, well, what kind of things should we take into consideration when we're making laws? Well, we should take into consideration the kind of society we want. Do we want a just society? Do we want an egalitarian society? Do we want a fair society? If we want those things, then we should make laws that reflect those you know, and in some cases, that means civil rights type legislation. It means labor laws that are protecting workers. But it also means um, economic policy that protects people from you know, incredible inequality, from unfair labor practices, from you know total destitution mm. and misery. Mm. And and so that's how I think about it: is the economy is just part of society. It's part of how we live together as people, and so that means it's part of politics. And so. We should take morality into into consideration anytime, anytime we're doing politics, and that must include economics because you can make all the good laws in the world, but if the economy is still unjust, you know that's material, that's right. money in your pocket or yes. not, that's a place to live or not. So as long as that's unjust, you're never going to have a just society. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, it, speaking specifically to our audience, we recognize, you know, as we represent and speak to a black. Christian collective that many of us have experienced particular groups, maybe even personally, the ways in which the Christian economic ethic has been racialized. There's been racialized terminology and there's been dog whistles. And can you kind of paint the picture of, of how damaging that is for our view of people who come from a different socioeconomic bracket or who are poor or who come from just a different context altogether? Right. So especially in the United States, just because of the history of our country sort of being founded by Puritans, um, the story of what a good person looks like um, is is a partially economic story. Mm. And it's, well, if you're a good person, you'll work hard and you'll have these, you know, sort of straightforward, almost New Englandish Protestant values and lifestyles, and uh, you will get ahead by nature of your industry and the market. And the other side of that is, therefore, if you are not doing well if you are poor or if you are financially not stable. That's because you are a lazy and bad person, mm. because you're not being industrious and putting you know, virtuous effort into your work. That's the assumption. And that picture is a very racialized picture. Mm. So those kinds of qualities, you know, laziness or um, non-productivity, low effort, those things get associated with people of color. So that's why every time we have the debate about welfare, about the kinds of supports that should be in place for people for whom the economy does not work, um, the debate becomes very racialized. You get mm -hmm. welfare queens. Um, yes. This time around, when Trump was talking about welfare reform, he was mostly upset about immigrants, mm -hmm. saying that immigrants were you know, taking all the money and taking all the welfare, and that's why we had to cut it back significantly. So it's always a very racialized picture. The thing about Christianity is, in, in no way is monetary success a measure of virtue. Hmm. And that, that can't be emphasized enough. It doesn't mean that everyone who's poor is a good person. But it certainly means that you don't get rich because you're a good person. Hmm. Wow. Oh, so oh, man. <laughs> it certainly means so that. Right? And so it, it is completely unfair and ridiculous uh, to suggest that everyone who is well-to-do is so because they're living good Christian lives. Sometimes that's the case, 
And oftentimes it's not the case. And a good case in point is, uh, you know, for example, Trump, who's very rich and right. <laughs> does not seem to be living uh, what I would think of as a good Christian life. Um, right. You can say that about almost any extravagantly wealthy person you can think of off the top of your head, as a matter of fact, um, because people usually get filthy rich by doing filthy things, sort of underhanded financial dealings and so on. Hmm. Um, so I think that's important. And, and breaking apart goodness from riches or goodness from wealth, splitting that up is, is so important in thinking about wealth from a Christian point of view. Yeah, that's so good. And you mentioned even kind of the origins of that in the the Puritan concept of a work ethic and and if you don't right. work you don't eat and these kind of the, these principles that were instilled in us maybe without context or maybe in a particular context a westernized white ideal yeah. how has the church been complicit in continuing that because i've seen that there's still a hearkening back to that and there's maybe different words used and maybe there's a different yeah. way it's presented, but it seems historically that the church has been, the the American evangelical church, I'll say, has been very complicit in that racialized projection. Would you agree? And if so, what are some examples of that? Yeah, I think that's very right. And I think you can certainly see it in the participation of sort of major evangelical figures in right-wing politics. So when you look at the first round of welfare reform and the kind of beginnings of welfare reform, the attempt to kind of trim back um, the supports in place for people who are poor, um, evangelical supporters of welfare reform would usually say things like, well, you know, if you have welfare, then you're just going to be a single mom and you're going to have lots of kids and you're never going to get married and have a good family and, Mm. and be, you know, a good virtuous person. And they would kind of tie together um, state programs for assisting poor people with sort of sexual immorality and laziness. Wow. Um, and so that had a heavily racialized component. You know, that was something mm. that, you know, the church was essentially arguing, if you help poor people, you're going to turn them into worse Christians. The only wow. way for poor people to be good Christians is if you, you know, don't give them any support and you try to force them to bootstrap their way up even though the economy is unfair, right? They won't acknowledge that. Um, and so there's a, there's a really racialized component to that. And, and I think that like a lot of anti-welfare and anti-poor politics and racial politics, it's just to try to maintain power. Right. You know, it's just because life is good if you're a well-to-do white person, and why would you want to support anything that could narrow the gap and give other people not only financial independence, economic power, the ability to advocate for themselves as workers, but also the ability to participate more fully in our democracy. Right, right. That that you is know? so fascinating. And and it's especially fascinating because I grew up in a in a context that was similar to yours in the fact that I was receiving an education that was incredibly conservative. So um, it was akin Bob Jones University was was our sister school, um, so oh, to speak, wow. as people would say. And I recently heard you talk about the ways in which the Bob Jones University case for desegregation, it crystallized the, the moral majority, the, the American Christian right, so to speak. Um, yeah. And so, you know, taking into account like the Bob Jones, the Jerry Falwells, um, I came from the Abeka book curriculum and program. So it's just all these <laughs> yeah. things that it seems led to an extension of this racialization in our modern times. So can you talk about just how important the Bob Jones University case was for crystallizing the Christian right and, and how desegregation was pushed against so hard? 
Yeah. So Bob Jones, you know, in case there are listeners who aren't familiar, it's a St. Angelical University. It's a small school. Um, and in the 1970s, I think under the Carter administration, um, they were still segregated. They weren't accepting black students. And so, you know, in line with the Civil Rights Act, the federal government said, if you don't accept black students just because they're black, then you're not going to receive any type of federal assistance, federal money, hmm. which I think also means that, you know, students who receive federal grants like Pell Grants to pay their tuition can't go to your school hmm. uh, and so on. And there might have been other threats um, around accreditation and so on. And um, so Bob Jones University, they say they, they framed this battle over segregation as a religious battle. They said, we're a religious institution, mm -hmm. and this is the secular government trying to come in and tell <laughs> us what we can or can't yes. do as Christians. And this is a familiar thing now, right? This is, this is mm. just the, the strategy that evangelicals have adopted in almost every case. Um, and the, 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 the point here is, you know, of course, it doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, there's, right. there's no Christian argument for segregation, for racial segregation. There's none. And what Bob Jones was trying to say is, well, because we're a religious organization, we kind of get to build a wall around whatever we do. And you don't get to come in there and tell us this is or isn't Christian, is or isn't part of your, uh, you know, religious practice. You just have to let us do essentially whatever we want and can't say anything about it. Hmm. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how the religious right cemented was around that kind of theory this antagonistic relationship between um, Christians and the state, where they, they recognized, at the same time they recognized little room for cooperation, they also became heavily politicized. Hmm. And that was the irony of it. So they, right. they began to support Republican politicians who said, essentially, we'll leave you alone. We'll let you do whatever you want. We, we won't put any limitations on what you can do. Um, and, you know, Republicans haven't necessarily been great at even delivering on that. There's a, there's a <laughs> <Right>. lot of <laughs> yes. dissatisfaction among evangelicals these days with the Republicans, which is why I think so many evangelicals gravitated to a Republican candidate who kind of beat up on the party, hmm. which was Trump. Right. Um, but that's kind of the position they're in now. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that there, there is still this kind of attitude of, you know, because we're a religious group, we get to decide what we do, and that can pertain to race, gender, anything else. Um, and I'm not sure that is a properly Christian understanding of how the relationship between the church and the state should work, right? Because you're a religious group, you can do whatever is just. Wow. Hmm. Can't do whatever you want, right? <laughs> you hmm. can do whatever is just. Being a religious group doesn't give you the right to do whatever you feel like. Hmm. Just what is just. And there's no Christian justification for racism of any kind or racial segregation of any kind. There just isn't. And so that initial misunderstanding that religious groups, because they're religious, should be allowed to do whatever they feel like um, kind of formed this, this virulently, at the same time, anti-government and, and also very cozy with the Republican Party evangelical tendency. And, you know, it's funny because I'm listening to the way that you're talking and what's refreshing about it is the way that you reframe just kind of these basic concepts. Um, who are some of the thinkers and authors that 
have influenced you to land in some of these places? I know influences are kind of a dangerous thing to say um, sometimes publicly, but maybe one or two people who have maybe from the past or the present who have maybe inspired you to kind of take different looks at the way in which the evangelical world or the the Christian world uh, approaches these topics. Because I think there are so many people like myself we're just in this process of, of deprogramming and relearning yeah. and kind of sure. stripping away the things that as we go back to the scriptures, we see uh, this doesn't really fall in line with the Bible, but we were taught that it did, et cetera. So who are some people who helped you kind of work through those yeah. things? So theologically, I'm a big fan of St. Augustine. I like the earliest Christian yeah. writing. I mean, it's the most radical. Um, <laughs> right, right. And, and it's it's fantastic. But but I think that, you know, in terms of like deprogramming from how Americans think about Christianity, history is really important. And fortunately, mm. there are a lot of really good, really readable history pieces that have been put out recently sort of on American Christianity. So Randall Balmer um, is a historian, I think, at Dartmouth. He's written about the Bob Jones case. He's written about Jimmy Carter's presidency. He was Carter was sort of the last left Christian president. Right. Um, and so what happened under Carter and following Carter with Reagan is really important in understanding how that kind of tendency in American Christianity went away. Um, Kevin Cruz wrote a really book called a really good book called One Nation Under God. Hmm. Um, which is about sort of how corporate America adopted the idea of Christian America um, to kind of suppress workers' rights and make money. Um, and then uh, Kate Bowler is a really great writer. She wrote a book called Blessed, hmm. which is a history of sort of prosperity gospel, so the way that some types of uh, churches or preachers take advantage of poorer people and sort of misconstrue the church's teaching about wealth to make you feel like if you're not wealthy, it's because you're a bad person or a bad Christian. Um, she wrote a really good book about that. Heath Carter is another guy who wrote a really good book called Union Made, oh, which yeah. is about... Big fan of Heath, big fan yeah, of Heath Yeah, he's Carter. great. He's great. He's great. He's fantastic. And then, so this is about sort of, you know, a labor Christianity. So like all of these things have existed in the United States. They have existed and they can exist, and they're still there in a lot of cases. And, you know, one of the great... Uh, reservoirs of, of left Christianity is black Christianity. Hmm, yes. you know, that's a place where it's it's died out much, much less than it has in, in white Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a couple of more questions before we let you go. I would love to talk about just two articles that I found really fascinating. Um, the second one is kind of a guilty pleasure, I'll admit. But the first one, um, I have a more serious question to kind of attach to it. So this, this article um, at the Washington Post was entitled Trump is Nakedly Fragile. And so it was a critique of the president by just subtly building this ethic of mercy. And I want to read just a portion of this article uh, for our listeners. Uh, you said, if mercy is, is not only meeting, but exceeding the requirements of justice, giving others not just their due, but more, then cruelty is its opposite exceeding even the privations of injustice, not only failing to give others their due, but taking from them even more. And you go on to say mercy, after all, is a quality of the strong. As we think about mercy in an evangelical Christian context, in a world that has been reeling from the, the election of Donald Trump and the ways in which Christians participated in it, how would you advise our listeners to develop the mercy that is the quality of the strong. Like, what are some ways that you have in your own heart, in your own context, 
understood mercy better. Um, because I think that's going to be really helpful for us, regardless of our context, to continue to grasp. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. It's really central to how Christians live, uh, is this question of mercy, because that is one of these qualities of Christ that comes through so strong. Um, I think that with with mercy, it's something that can you can start to cultivate it in a very small way. You know, you don't have to go, you don't have to start with these huge and very demonstrative acts of mercy. The ones that, you know, for example, Christ was capable of asking for the forgiveness of the people who were crucifying mm. him. That's an enormous act of mercy. Right, right. Um, and it's okay to start small, I think, and to just kind of cultivate in your own heart the ability to make yourself vulnerable in that way, you know, right. like Christ. So, you know, there's mercy interpersonally, um, just in your relationships with other people, um, and that can be as easy as, um, you know, the, the special thing about mercy is it's one thing to say, well, if you understand where someone's coming from and why they made a mistake, then you can forgive them. But that's not mercy. Hmm. That's fairness. Mercy wow. is when you understand that someone did something wrong flat out. There's no excuse. Hmm and you forgive them anyway. Wow. But that doesn't mean that you have to accept the behavior or that you don't ask for them to change or build an expectation that they change. It's saying, I'm not giving up on you because you've done something wrong, and I'm going to stay with you and expect you to change. That's mercy. Hmm. Yeah, you I even, really think it is. You even talk about that in, I remember once before I referenced this article, the Even the Wicked article, um, yeah. that you wrote on Medium, which is a phenomenally challenging article, I think because it draws on, you know, I always quote Dr. King, but it kind of draws on that concept of, are you willing to extend mercy even to, to the worst of the worst, um, even right. to the people who are, we would consider wicked. Uh, one more question, and I saved this to the end so that people would continue listening, but um, our award-winning producer, Bo York, and I are huge Star Wars nerds. Um, oh, so we are massive Star Wars fans and our listeners are probably sick and tired of us continually talking about <laughs> it. But um, you wrote this article entitled What the Last Jedi Gets Wrong About Fascism. And so I kind of looked at that title a little skeptically. And so I was like, oh, yeah. what is she talking about here? And you really challenged me. I was actually able to, to rewatch the film this week uh, when it came out on DVD. And so... I've really kind of taken a step back and said, oh, she's kind of right. And I think the ways in which you talk about it are similar to how I felt about one of Marvel's uh, villains, Red Skull, in the first Captain America movie. Yeah. And he was so over the top evil and obvious and Red Skull and just you yeah. know, bombastic. And, and I'm like, well, evil doesn't really normally look like that. So it just yeah. seems like that's just a very strange way of portraying evil. But... Talk a little bit about what The Last Jedi gets wrong about fascism, because I think it's really important for the ways in which we conceive of evil to begin with. Yeah, so I love The Last Jedi. I thought it was fantastic. Yes, um, I did too. I know, Thank you. I know there was <laughs> a lot of disagreement about it, but I thought it was a really fun movie, right. and I'm probably overthinking it, <laughs> just to put that out there. Oh, no, it was um, good. It was challenging. It was very challenging. It was. It was. There's a lot to chew on, and, and, and it's fun to think about. Um, it's fun to think about these things in, like, low-stakes situations, like Star Wars, because when you have to think about them in the context of real life, it's very stressful. Right, absolutely. Um, so I think that, 
you know, you look at The Last Jedi, and it's not clear how the First Order came to power. So, like, we don't know if there was any kind of democratic aspect of their gaining power, so you just kind of have to leave that out. But in real life, when fascist regimes in the 20th century, uh, for instance, have come to power, they've usually come to power with some democratic support, quite a bit of democratic support. Mm -hmm. And the reason they do that is because they're able to channel and speak the language of public unhappiness, usually with the economy. Hmm. And so they will, they will spin this very right populist message, right? They'll say, you know, big businesses are hurting you, bankers are hurting you, international trade is hurting you, everyone's hmm. taking advantage of you, and you're laboring and working hard, and you can't even make money and have a life in your own country. That's kind of the right populist message. So it's pushing all these emotional buttons that are racialized in some respects, and they're certainly highly nationalist. And fascists are usually more than comfortable with big business, banks, and so forth when they get into power. They don't follow through, hmm. in other words. But part of how they come to power is to recognize that anger and that discontent. They speak to people where they are. And, you know, fascism is very successful at that. They tell a story about themselves um, that can sound, especially if you're sort of disenfranchised, resentful, very poor, and angry, that can sound very appealing. So what I, what I thought was kind of funny about The Last Jedi is it looks like the First Order, which is kind of this, like, transparently fascist government, is, like, extremely abusive of, of, of poorer people, um, you know, these, these mining planets where Rose grew up, for example, they stripped them of all their minerals and then shelled them to test their weapons and so on. So they kind of have open disdain for the people you would actually imagine are probably, you know, in, a, in an actual fascist regime would kind of be their mm -hmm. support base. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, the people who have, you know, the resistance gets to have this kind of big monologue on social inequality and unfair economics. Um, but I think that, you know, if, if the film were a little more true to fascism, you would also have, like, Hux giving some of those speeches. Right, right. And that's what makes fascism dangerous, right? That's what makes it work. If it were just evil, if every time fascism showed up, fascists said, hi, we're uh, crazy people who lust for power and we want to mm -hmm. kill a bunch of people and ruin everything, then <laughs> they would never get into power. Like, that's, that's right. That's just not how you work your way into power. That's not how you get donors. That's not how you get uh, voting base. Uh, the way they come into power is by recognizing real problems and then promising solutions um, that either are nonsense or that won't work, and then they don't follow through. Yeah. So I think that, that you know, if I had gotten a chance to write it, I would have given Huck some speeches <laughs> on, right. uh, on the arms dealers and on the banks and on finance. Hmm. You know, and, and you can kind of understand and those oh, okay, I can kind of see how if you're someone who is living in a, you know, far off mining planet that's kind of been stripped of most of its resources, how you're angry at what you perceive as the kind of decadent republic, um, you know, this rich, decadent place while you're poor and suffering. Uh, and you can kind of see in that case how they would have come to power. And and it would have made the, the conflict a little more complicated. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Evil is so. so seductive. I think, I think yeah, sometimes yeah. we don't, 
we don't realize how it tempts us sometimes with the things that we desperately want in the first place, um, the things that we right. think are good critiques. And so that's that really helped me to kind of frame the movie and rewatch it kind of with more critical eyes. But I still loved it. So I still love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's there's, fantastic. There's it no great. use getting me off that. I really enjoyed it. So I went ahead yeah, and bought I like, it. I rewatch it every time it's on. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Where can our, our listeners keep up with you? Do you have a book coming out at all? I mean, a TV show, a documentary, anything <laughs> no coming book. out? No book. I have a two-year-old instead oh, of all of that. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. That so, makes sense. Uh, but I do, I do write regularly for the Washington Post. So you can find me in the Washington Post and I'm on Twitter at ebrunig. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on Pass the Mic. This has been a refreshing conversation and we're really glad that you were able to have it with us. Thanks so much for having me on. It was great. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.